Love this podcast? Support this show through the Acast supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give, and there's no regular commitment. Just click the link in the show description to support now. Everyone knows therapy is great for solving problems, but getting therapy has its own problems too, like finding the right therapist, fitting into their schedule, and of course, the cost. Well, BetterHelp can solve those problems. It's totally online and built around your schedule. It's surprisingly affordable too. Connect with a credentialed therapist by phone, video, or online chat, all from the comfort of your home. Visit BetterHelp.com to learn more and save 10% on your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P. It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom. Like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, Right. For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. everybody welcome into an all-new episode of can we please talk podcast as always i am mike leon my co-host is out on the sandy beaches of punta cana la república dominicana he's out there probably drinking what do they drink out there presidente i forget what it is that they drink out there but he's probably having a few presidentes uh we wish him well he'll be back with us in the coming weeks i am solo flying this plane but I alluded to it in the last episode when we had Washington Post national politics reporter Sabrina Rodriguez on the show that we were going to be doing something special around the Israel-Hamas war, all the latest that's happening, um, the hostage negotiations that have broken down now as of this recording. Um, And I wanted to bring somebody on that is a subject matter expert on the region, has been covering it, was just in Israel for the first six weeks of this conflict knows the surrounding countries, their relationships with Israel, and we really tackle the U.S.'s response in all this. So you're going to hear her voice in just a bit, but PBS NewsHour special correspondent, Leila Molana Allen, she joins me in just a bit to break all of this down. Before we actually get into the episode itself, I'm really, really privileged. Um, Maybe privilege is the wrong word. I'm, I'm just thankful that people out there listen, respond to this show, and that we have great bookers on this program that bring us somebody like Layla that you're going to hear in just a second to really analyze the region. I don't take for granted the feedback we've heard, emails we've gotten from folks, direct messages, text messages I get from people that listen to the program about the way we look at a news story and really break it down a little bit further, given this podcast format to be able to give it to you in a manner that is 30, 40, 50 minutes. So you can kind of go in depth and learn more about it. And like I mentioned to Layla in the episode, and I want all of you to continue to do this, this shouldn't be your only stop on the information train, folks. Your last destination should be after you've accumulated all the facts and commonalities that come from everything you listen to source-wise. I really want people to continue to do that because that's the process I do. And that's the process that good journalists go through from a reporting standpoint when you do go get multiple sources on or off the record to kind of compile your story. And then you give somebody, uh, an editor, to give the once over before we approve publishing that said story. So I want people to carry that practice when they're listening to these uh, episodes that we put out and listening to other folks that are out there in the space, not into confrontational journalism, 
I'm not here to steer you wrong, folks. But if I do steer you wrong, counterbalance and check me by listening to somebody else and making sure that the facts that we're giving you on this program and the information that we're giving you is on the up and up. So with that, I can turn to nobody better to help me break down a little bit more what's happening with Israel and Hamas, the latest on all of it, an understanding of the region. Enjoy this special uh, episode as I recorded with PBS NewsHour special correspondent, Leila Molana Allen. I can't thank her enough for coming on the program. This episode is brought to you by KitCaster. KitCaster books you on top podcasts. How do funded startup founders attract prospects and talent? Podcast interviews. How do entrepreneurs with exits find new deals? Podcast interviews. How do C-suite execs differentiate in crowded markets? Podcast interviews. KitCaster books you on top podcasts. Click the link in the show notes for a special offer. Celebrate good conversation. All right, kind enough to give me a couple minutes here. She's a PBS NewsHour special correspondent, uh, Layla Molana Allen. Layla, Mike Leon, thank you so much for hopping on the podcast and doing this. Great to be with you, Mike. You know, Layla, you and I were talking about this off camera. We're going to get into a bunch of your reporting uh, out in Israel and stuff like that. But the, the latest on the war, we tend to cover it here at the beginning of the program. And right now, obviously, the truce is over. We have 15,000 or so Palestinians dead. We have what happened on October 7th. We've had Israel's response to all of this. You've been on the ground. You've been covering this 30,000 foot overview for our audience. Take us through not only a little bit of what you've been reporting on on the ground, but Hamas recently said there won't be any more hostage negotiations if Israel continues their airstrikes. Now we've seen Israel starting to uh, have airstrikes in the south of Gaza, we already know about the fighting in the north of Gaza. Take us through it all. And there's no end in sight here for this, unfortunately. But what do you make of it all? There is very sadly no end in sight. And of course, you know, one of the interesting and very sad things about this war, the many very sad things about this war, is that I think for a lot of people, when this started on the 7th of October, it came out of nowhere. Um, certainly for at least a year Many people have felt that Hamas was being incredibly quiet. I was in Israel over the summer reporting after the big attack by the IDF against Janine Camp and then the mass protests that were taking place. Israeli society was completely divided, riven apart over this left-right divide over Benjamin Netanyahu's extreme right-wing government that he'd formed. And you even had, you know, many senior members of the military deciding they weren't going to fight. Meanwhile, Hamas, even earlier in the year, when there were a few rocket strikes coming across, they would immediately say nothing to do with us. It was the Islamic Jihad. It was a different faction. So people really didn't expect it immediately. But more than that, people in the rest of the world had turned their eyes away from Israel and Palestine, even though there have been consistent wars in Gaza uh, in 2020, 2021 and the years before that, of course, the largest, most recent wars in 2014, people really have decided that it's not a conflict they want to deal with, that it's too difficult, and that a few thousand deaths every few years is an acceptable cost to pay, and misery on both sides is an acceptable cost to pay. So when this suddenly happened, people who hadn't been watching it were shocked, and people who had were shocked that Hamas had come forward and done this, but weren't shocked as the reverberation started to happen. Because for those of us who have, I've lived and worked in the region for 15 years, and this has been building. This has been building for a long time, not just what happened in Gaza and in Israel, but the reactions of all the surrounding countries. Now, what happened on the 7th of October, I've covered conflict for, for over a decade, as I say, and it's some of the most horrific, most personal violence I have ever seen. Uh, I was on the ground going into the communities that were attacked. I was speaking to the survivors, to the relatives of those who were killed. I was watching the evidence from Hamas body cameras, personal CCTV in people's houses that was retrieved, uh, the victims' phones that, that, that were found there, the videos that were filmed before they died, looking at the remains of people's bodies. We're talking about the spines of a mother and child fused together in a lump of coal because they were burnt to death alive. I mean, really just the most personal and horrifying kind of violence you can imagine. And of course, the reaction to that from Israelis, both hardline Israelis and the most moderate Israelis, many of whom lived in these kibbutzes along the border, was one of such shock because the point of the foundation of this country 
whether or not you agree with the way Israel operates now, the point was this would this would never happen again. And this isn't actually the Holocaust. What this kind of violence is, is the pogroms that preceded the Holocaust for many decades. A pogrom is a specific act of um, incredibly personal genocidal violence against Jews that was taking place across the world. And really people being dragged from their homes, their bodies mutilated, tortured in front of their children. And the fact that this could happen again, not war with the IDF, but people going into their homes, torturing their family members in front of them, torturing parents in front of their children, torturing kill, uh, children as well killing them in this way really has put everyone on the same side that this can't happen again. And the number of moderate Israelis I've spoken to who've said, I don't want Gazan children to die, but if it's their children or my children, it's going to be their children. So that's a huge shift we've seen because what many people don't see is how many very moderate Israelis there are, how many people really do want peace and negotiation with Palestinians. And of course, then what we've seen on the other side is it began as it always begins with rockets going back into far more high-tech rockets going back into Gaza than the ones that Hamas send out, which they have been continuing to do for 60 days. And they've obviously got a massive stockpile, far more than we imagined they could have after wars in recent years. But the more the airstrikes happened and the more the buildings fell and thousands and thousands of Gazans died, world opinion has started to change. And I think particularly during that ceasefire, when we started to see more voices as well coming out, the question of whether anybody can continue to support what Israel is doing, even with that final goal of getting rid of Hamas. And secondly, whether they ever can is where we are now. And many people in the world now do believe that Israel is committing genocide. And genocide, of course, is a specific act under humanitarian law that is targeted at removing a group of people. Now, to kill people in what Gaza is, which is a kill box, many people feel that it's, that it's now bordering into that. And we are getting figures from the Israelis that they estimate between one and 2,000 Hamas fighters have been killed out of that 15,000 people who've been killed. Out of the 30,000 fighters, Hamas fighters, they think are in Gaza, one to 2,000 in two months with 15,000 people dead. That's one in 10 people is a militant if they're, if they're lucky. Whether that can continue you know, with international support, I, I'm, I'm not sure. You know, Leila, you fed into so many different follow-ups and angles there. And I wanted to read for you something that an IDF spokesperson recently said uh, on Outfront with Aaron Burnett over on CNN. And he said something to the effect of, and I'm paraphrasing here, I can say that if this is true, and I think that our numbers will be corroborated, if you compare that ratio to any other conflict in urban terrain between a military and a terrorist organization using civilians as human shields, you will find that the ratio is tremendously positive, which I could not believe my ears. But I did want to play for you because you talked about it there about the humanitarian part of this. And I think that's the part that I live on. It's not pro-Palestine. It's not pro-Israel. It's pro-human life and what is going on here. I Recently, Representative Seth Moulton was on the podcast with us. He's an Iraq war veteran here in the U.S. He's a congressman representing Massachusetts. And I asked him about this duality of the U.S., helping to make the mess a little bit, but also providing the paper towels to clean up the mess, to kind of clean the analogy up a little bit. And I said, how do we, how do we live with this duality? Like, how are U.S. citizens supposed to digest this? And what should Israel's response be? I want you to take a listener's response. Let's react on the other side. Take a listen. Well, Israel has a right, I would argue, even a responsibility to remove the Hamas terrorists the threat that they are to their nation and their people, they also have a right and a responsibility to protect innocent Palestinians. And, and the point that I've made from my experience fighting in the counterinsurgency battles of Iraq is that if Israel doesn't make the case to innocent, peace-loving Palestinians that they shouldn't want to live under a Hamas terror regime themselves, and there are a lot of Palestinians who fit into this category. There's, there's, there's data, there's polling that shows that a lot of the Palestinians in Gaza do not like living under a terrorist regime. But Israel has to give them a better an alternative. They have to be able to provide a better future than Hamas or else when they go in to take out Hamas, if they kill innocent civilians, as they already have been doing, they're just going to recruit more Hamas terrorists you know, so the U.S.'s involvement in all this, similar to what he just said there, we're seeing a lot more responses like that. Senator Bernie Sanders talking about the aid 
and the conditions. And he wouldn't give this right now to Bibi's current government, which you just mentioned is right wing. And we saw some of the protests earlier this summer out of Israel. Secretary of Defense Lloyd Austin said something similar. Vice President Kamala Harris has said all this. What do you make of not only the U.S.'s involvement in this, but now some of the political figures in the U.S. side saying, hey, Israel, you are killing innocent civilians. That ratio is terrible, like you just mentioned. What do you make and what are you hearing from people that are out there in the region about the U.S.'s involvement in all this? So there are a few points to address here. The first one I just want to address is what you said there about that idea of spokesperson. Now, and this feeds into what America's doing. This is a propaganda war. The IDF has not had to fight a war in this way with this level of press scrutiny in the in the era of 24-hour news. It hasn't had a war on this scale in decades. Now, it's very interesting to watch the IDF press machine. Every day, a line will come out from the top level of the Israel Defense Forces. That will then filter down and all the officials and spokespeople that day, whatever that line is, one day it's Hamas is worse than the Nazis because the Nazis were at least ashamed of what they're doing. Hamas is proud of it. Another day, it's a different line. Now, it's not that these things are true or untrue, but there's a very clear filter down press machine. And that filters down to the people who are speaking. By the second day, it filters down to the civilians, the Israeli civilians that you're interviewing. And by the third day, it's going around the world as the press line. But it's quite heavy handed and they're not very subtle about it. And they've changed direction extremely sharply as they started to notice different international reactions because they're trying to fight this war on the press front as well as on the military front. And people inside the army who I've spoken to are very frustrated about this because they say, for God's sake, it doesn't matter. We don't care what the international community thinks. We've got to get on with this and protect our country. They don't know. They don't have these people on their border trying to go and kill them. But the reality is that if America wants to maintain the kind of international, uh, sorry, if Israel wants to maintain the kind of international support it's had, particularly, of course, from America, they do have to care about these issues. So we've seen, you know, at the beginning, Israel really had international support on side and they did whatever they liked in the first couple of weeks. And then as voices start to come out of Gaza, because, of course, one of the big things Israel's dealing with as well is with the advent of social media, it's no longer a one sided conflict. Even though journalists can't get into Gaza, international journalists, which is what the Israelis always do whenever there's a war and then they let you in afterwards, then this has been a very long running war, so we can't get in. There are enough Palestinian journalists and enough Palestinian people with access to social media who are very savvy, who speak English. Palestinians are you know, very educated, the young community who are putting out what's happening and they're not able to cover that up. So when particularly Biden and Blinken started to change their attitude in those early couple of weeks, they started to say, oh, actually, initially they were saying Israel will do whatever it needs to do. It has the absolute right to protect itself. And then they started to say, with moderation, can you take things a little bit slower? Very noticeably, initially, Israel was saying we are going in, we're going in hard, this ground invasion. They started then to take it a little bit slower because Biden was asking for a phased invasion. Now, the Israelis are very angry about what's happened because they feel that they were asked by the Americans to take it a little bit slower. And in doing so, because it has taken longer and there's been more time. And, you know, it's day after day after day of these most horrific images coming out. And of course, you start to feel like it's just, which it is, the most defenseless people in the world just being beaten over the head day after day, as they also starve, as well as being hit by airstrikes every day. So they feel that they had the massive international opinion on their side in the early days, straight after the attack, but because they've been asked to take it slower, now that's changing and they're extremely concerned about that. Now, in terms of America's role, of course, America traditionally is Israel's biggest supporter. You know, The amount of money they give to Israeli defense is, is quite incredible and you know, completely uh, conditions how Israel is able to respond to these things. Now, traditionally, that's been because Israel is its strongest ally in the Middle East. But it's not its only ally in the Middle East, and it's certainly not its most important ally in the Middle East in many ways. Now, when Biden went to Israel and the Jordanian government turned around and said, we are cancelling this summit that we were going to have because of what's happening in Gaza, that was a huge, huge punch in the face. For them to do that publicly, to not back channel, the Jordanians are incredibly calm. They're incredibly careful. 
they don't stand up and do things like this. They really balance both sides. They have American troop presence, they have British troop presence. They are one of the most important Western allies because they're so, so good at moderation and they're so good at negotiation. So for them to stand up and do that was really a huge slap in the face for the Americans and a warning that this is not going to be accepted, that murder on this scale won't be accepted, that the potential cleansing of Palestinians from Gaza will not be accepted. And immediately you saw the American administration start to change a bit. The second thing that happened was that Arab Americans turned around and started to get incredibly angry. And the Biden administration suddenly realized these people, just because we're Democrats, are not necessarily guaranteed to us. And they started to get very nervous. And you saw representatives from the Biden administration start going out into Arab American communities to try and repair those bonds. Because, of course, in America, the Palestinian community is incredibly strong and powerful. The Lebanese community is incredibly strong and powerful. Now, it might not necessarily be in politics the way that the Jewish community is, but it certainly is in business, in society. And many of these people are the people who made the links back into Arab society in America after 9-11, and the government's extremely dependent on them. So they're balancing these factors alongside the fact that firstly, traditionally, both because of the Jewish lobby and because it's what they do, they have to support Israel. But maybe they're not willing to support Israel without end. Now, the other issue, of course, is the upcoming election. Biden is in such a difficult position because he cannot afford to alienate his center-right supporters because they'll go to Trump. So he can't turn his back on Israel, even if he would want to. So he's playing this very, very delicate game that some people see as gentle and paddling in the water. Most people see as incredibly weak. The attitude of Israelis is that the Americans aren't doing enough to support them. The attitude of Palestinians is that America is turning a blind eye and just putting out statements asking for moderation while they die in their thousands. Now, even people who traditionally have done very little publicly, like the UN, who traditionally just puts out statements. We are seeing the strongest language ever from the UN, from NGOs, publicly talking about genocide, publicly talking about the fact that this, that the Israelis are committing war crimes in Gaza. This is a huge change from previous language, and it's because this is so extreme. And the third issue is Gazans themselves. Now, what they're facing, obviously, is completely unprecedented and utterly horrifying. 50% of Gaza is now gone. OCHA, which is a UN's humanitarian arm, have done satellite imagery and they've looked at what they know of housing units. 15,000 people are now dead. That's nearly one in 150 people in Gaza. And they will have no homes to go back to afterwards. They're now being pushed down into South Gaza as they have been for weeks. Nearly 2 million people of the 2.3 million population are displaced into South of Gaza. The Israelis have been saying for weeks, and again, this was a way in which they changed their posturing when they realized people were concerned about the humanitarian situation. It suddenly became all about how hard they were trying to keep Palestinians safe. When, of course, in many cases, they're hitting a building for one Hamas operative and killing 50 to 70 people in that same building, 50 to 70 civilians. And when I say 15,000 people are dead, 7,000 people are missing because they're still under the rubble. So that death toll, once finally people can actually lift the rubble up because they're going through rubble with their bare hands. People are dying because they're crushed under buildings and they don't have bulldozers because they're not allowed to have that kind of infrastructure. And even where they do have it, they don't have the fuel because of sanctions, because of the blockade that's been imposed to be able to lift up that rubble. So many more people are actually dead than the current death toll is the likelihood. Now they've all been pushed down to the south of Gaza. It was boiling hot and they had no water. Now it's freezing cold and they have no shelter. And now the Israelis are saying, actually... We got it wrong. The main Hamas operation center is in the south. They think that Yahya Samwar, who is the head of um, Hamas in Gaza, is in the south, in Khan Yunus, which is the biggest city in the south, originally home to around 400,000 people, now home to well over a million. And people are still being killed in the south of Gaza every day. People were being killed as they evacuated from the north of Gaza. There is nowhere safe. And the other option is a humanitarian corridor is opened and they leave. And both Gazans and all other Palestinians and all Arab states know that if they do leave, they will never be allowed back. And that will be the ethnic cleansing of Gaza. And that's undoubted by almost everyone. And the fact that the Israelis has, have not stood up and said, no, no, we're happy to make a commitment that we'll let them back, makes it clear that that's a likelihood. So the way this is playing out is such that this is not a self-contained war. This is one where America's actions 
and their attitude to Israel may be permanently conditioned for the future, Israel has to make a choice about what's more important to them. And as I say, whether they can ever actually eradicate Hamas, which seems deeply unlikely, firstly, based on how much they've achieved so far in two months, having killed, we think, one to 2,000 operatives out of maybe 30,000, how deep these tunnels are and how many they've managed to take out and how many they've even managed to find, because it may be that the network isn't as extensive as their intelligence tells them it is. And thirdly, the fact that you can't kill an ideology. And if nothing changes, what this tells us is that after 17 years of no movement at all in the peace process, and of course, the fact that Hamas was theoretically elected in a disputed election by people. Now, when people say, oh, but Gazans elected these people, they wanted this, and you talk about Hamas support there. Hamas support was incredibly low uh, in about the 20% the, in the last poll that was done before this. And of course, then shot up a week after the attacks, not because of the attacks, but because of the Israelis' reaction in the couple of days afterwards. It wasn't like that. But half of the Gazan population is under 18. So they weren't alive when the election happened. And another 25% of them weren't of voting age when the, ele- when the last election happened. Now, can you say for a second that if your leader was elected, not in your lifetime or in your childhood, they've been around for 17 years, and what was being done to you was being justified on the basis that you elected that person? I mean, for instance, think about Donald Trump and how people felt about Donald Trump. Now, that's your leader whether or not you elected him, if he was in power for 20 years. So these are all things that people are starting to realise and think about, and it will condition how this moves forward. And we're now in a long-running war. This isn't a a quick shot anymore, uh, and it's going to change all these relationships moving forward and the future of this conflict. You know, Leila, one of the things I appreciate about you is, and we've had other historians on, a Palestinian historian, uh, a UCLA professor of Israel studies, kind of talking about this conflict. And, you know, you're echoing a lot of the same things that they're saying, right? Which is the point of this show to bring on subject matter experts like yourself that have been in the region and have understood this. So I want to give a moment of literacy here for our listeners and watchers of this, because you mentioned something there about Jordan's response and how calm they are and an ally of the U.S. But there are people that are probably listening to this that don't understand foreign policy or the region itself or, hey, why can't they just leave to Egypt and the relationship and the complicated one with Egypt? You've been in Egypt before and you've covered this. Like I said, you're going back to Israel in a few weeks. You were just there for a while. And you kind of explain to our listeners and watchers about the surrounding countries and the relationship and just how small Gaza is and why these folks can't leave, how few thousands of them are actually allowed to travel to Israel for work. Like there's just so much uh, nuance to it and an understanding of these countries' relationships in the region and how it all kind of uh, intertwines with itself. So can you can you kind of take our audience a little bit, a moment of literacy for us to understand a little bit about the relationships between Jordan and Egypt and Gaza and the w- difference between Gaza and the West Bank and Israel? Now, at the beginning of this, I said that, you know, for those of us who have lived and worked in the region for many years, who speak the languages, who are out there all the time, this was coming. But the other issue here is when this war started. And for Israel, this war started on the 7th of October. When you speak to them, they say everything was peaceful on the 6th of October. We didn't ask for this. We didn't bring this war on ourselves. It was peaceful for them. For Palestinians, this war started in 1948. The scenes we are seeing of Gazans being driven from the north to the south are reminiscent for everyone of Palestinians being driven from their homes in 1948 and to a lesser extent, to a different extent, in 1967 when the borders changed. Palestinians in 1948 were told to leave their homes, but many of them by Arab states because they were in danger and they would be allowed to return home. They were never allowed to return home. Since then, many who were lucky have managed to get citizenship in surrounding countries. One of the reasons why Jordan is so careful about this is because 65% of Jordan's population is Palestinian. In the 70s, they had an uprising that they very nearly lost with Palestinians deciding they wanted the country to be governed differently. This was after Jordan lost control of what's now the West Bank uh, and divided Jerusalem in 1967, and they were angry about it. So Jordan's always been extremely careful, and that's one of the reasons why they want that Western allyship, but also why they understand the situation more than anyone. The King of Jordan's wife herself is Palestinian, and very proudly so. So Jordan is the gentle player, the careful player, the balanced player in this. And should there be, at any point, a two-state solution, 
Jordan will almost certainly be involved in the administration of that in some way. They did previously administer Palestinian territory. Then you've got Egypt. Now, Egypt does border Gaza in a very small area. Egypt used to administer Gaza in the way that Jordan administered what's now the West Bank and East Jerusalem. There's a border crossing there. Traditionally, many years ago, it was open and Palestinians could come back and forth. They could go and seek medical care. They could trade. When it was then closed a couple of decades ago, that's where the first tunnels underground were built, was from Egypt into, uh, into Gaza. And those were then shut down by the Egyptians. So now for many years, it's been shut. There have been small openings of the border for people to exit for certain reasons. So it's not closed to everyone. It's just closed to Palestinians to move freely as they should like because they don't have passports. They do have identity documents, um, but they don't have you know, what we would consider to be a passport. So they can go in sometimes for medical care. They can go in for trade. When things are peaceful, Egypt is the place that Gazans move back and forth from. They have many family members living there. That's also the only place they can travel from if they can fly because they can get to airports in Egypt. Now, the West Bank is a totally different landmass on the other side of Israel that links on to the edge of Jerusalem, which is divided. Jerusalem is a divided city and a disputed city. The West Bank theoretically is land that belongs to the Palestinians. In the Oslo Accords, which were agreed with America uh, overseeing, what was agreed that they divided up this West Bank land into three areas, about 40% of which, two areas, completely are under the control of the Palestinian Authority, which is the government that was formed to help Palestinians. Uh, and then about 60% of it is disputed land. Now, it's not supposed to be disputed, it's supposed to belong to the Palestinians. And theoretically, any future state in a two-state solution would be made up of the West Bank, Gaza, and potentially whatever is negotiated over Jerusalem. Jerusalem is the big sticking point for both Israelis and Palestinians because they both want it to be their capital, it's the holiest city for both of them. Uh, and for Muslims, it's the third, uh, Al-Aqsa Mosque, which is inside it, is the third holiest site in Islam. So that's what was supposed to happen. But for decades now, the Israelis have been building internationally illegal settlements inside the West Bank. There are 700,000 settlers living in the West Bank. The more of these settlements that are built, the less likely it is there will ever be a two-state solution. And while this conflict has been going on the last two months, I've been in all these West Bank towns, and you're seeing villagers being pushed out, forcibly displaced from their villages by violent settlers, many of whom have now rejoined the army and the most experienced IDF officers have been sent to the war in Gaza. And now these settler areas are actually being run by settler soldiers. So they're pushing these herders out. We've seen now almost triple the number of Palestinians who were displaced from their villages in the last two years, displaced in the last two months. So it's definitely being used as an excuse while people's eyes are diverted to Gaza to try and clear more of that land. So what we're seeing is a slow and increasingly fast erosion, both in the West Bank and now in Gaza, of the land that should be a state for the Palestinians, which was theoretically agreed years ago, and now everyone has just kind of stepped back from and just hasn't happened in years. But the more that happens, the less likely it is they will ever have a state, and the less likely it is that there will ever be peace. Now, the question everyone will ask is, well, why can't they go to other Arab countries? They're Arabs. Firstly, because they are Palestinians. They are from this land. They have a right to land there, both under what they say traditionally, but also under multiple international agreements. Arab countries don't want to take them for two reasons. Firstly, because it's a huge influx of another group of people who traditionally have already caused a lot of political problems. And we've seen until this war happened, some Arab countries deciding to normalize relations with Israel when traditionally they hadn't spoken to Israel, um, had been at war with Israel for many years because they're trying to calm things down. So taking in a huge influx of Palestinians would create lots of internal conflicts in those countries. And secondly, they don't want to take them because it's a political statement, because who wants to be the nation that allows the ethnic cleansing of Palestinians from their land? No one, and certainly not Egypt. 
Egypt traditionally was a leader in the Arab world. It has struggled a lot, uh, particularly, of course, in the last 10 years since the revolution there. Uh, it's now in a position where it's economically, the situation is absolutely dire. They're particularly struggling at the moment because of these Houthi attacks. So there have been attacks by rebels from Yemen, Iran-backed rebels called the Houthis in Yemen, who have been attacking the Red Sea, ships in the Red Sea that are trying to get to Israel to bring supplies. But what that means is that ships that are turning away and not using that supply route are then not using the Suez Canal, which is Egypt's main source uh, of income at the moment. Secondly, they've been struggling with tourism because of all the violence that happened there in the years after the Egyptian revolution in 2011. They finally started getting some of that back again. They certainly don't want to go with, to war with Israel. And thirdly, even if they did open the border, even if there was some kind of agreement whereby Israel swore that Gazans would be allowed to come back, they agreed to split the cost of rebuilding Gaza with the UN and America, you move them over the border at Rafah into the Egyptian desert. This is an incredibly dangerous area full of jihadi militants. It's already restricted for Egyptians and many other people to go there in the first place. Are you going to have an, a refugee camp of two million people in this incredibly dangerous area? Who's going to run it? The UN, their Palestinian projects that they've run since 1948. So the UN provides services to all displaced and refugee Palestinians, provides schooling for them, provides medical care for them, was already two thirds underfunded this year in terms of what they need just to keep those projects going before Gaza was destroyed, before all these camps in the West Bank with the raids that the IDF are doing there were destroyed. They're going to have to rebuild all of that. It's not really a tangible possibility. And of course, then the other factor you have in the region is Lebanon extending all the way through Syria, Iraq, and over to Iran. We've got these Iranian backers who we know were funding Hamas. But Iran has stepped up and said, you didn't tell us about this attack. They've said that Hamas did not agree this attack with them. And that Hamas seemingly expected Iran to step up and start fighting. And Iran has said it's not going to do that. Now, we are seeing a lot of fighting across the border with Lebanon. I lived in Lebanon for many years and I've uh, done a lot of work on and with Hezbollah. Um, they are ramping up their attacks as well. But they are not interested in a war either right now because they're in a difficult position in Lebanon where Lebanon has completely fallen apart in the last few years. Uh, more than 80% of people in Lebanon now live in abject poverty. There was a huge war with Israel in 2006 when many people died and, and uh, Hezbollah became national heroes because they fought Israel off. But if they start this war with Israel, they will lose all legitimacy in Lebanon because they will be seen as responsible for the deaths of many thousands of Lebanese. So there's currently a dispute between those who think that Hezbollah should be focused on Lebanon, and those who think that they should be spreading across and working with Syria uh, and with Iran against Israel. So there is a divide in that. But Israel is surrounded by countries that have various issues with it, with its existence, with its behavior, but they're not as united with each other as people think they are. Leila, you know, one of the things I wanted to get into with you, because you have such vast knowledge of not only the region, the countries, you've reported so much from the ground over there. Let's get into the media coverage of this. We've seen a lot of misinformation, disinformation Different places now, we've seen how social media has really uh, risen with respect to different platforms and what the algorithm is serving people. For listeners and watchers that are listening to this, watching this, they say, I want to learn more about it, but I want a trusted source besides the Can We Please Talk podcast and Layla coming on. But like, I, I want to find out more about it. What book should I be reading? What journalists, uh, what papers, excuse me, or publications are very fair and balanced in their coverage? We've seen some of the ire of the Israeli government towards Haaretz and, and what they're reporting on. Um, we've asked other people, scholars of the region about this, but I want to get it from somebody who's doing this work. Like, what would you recommend to people out there that want to learn more about it? It's, Al Jazeera shouldn't be your only stop, but you should also make other stops across the media spectrum. What would you uh, say to that listener or watcher about how to get information about this conflict? Now, I'm going to be very careful here because I'm not in the business, in the practice of criticizing my colleagues. Um, one of the big problems with Israel and Palestine is that everyone has an opinion. If there was a civil war happening in Colombia, everyone and his father wouldn't stand up 
and decide that they're an expert. But for some reason, because this conflict is so long running, because there is such a huge Jewish diaspora around the world, Muslim diaspora around the world, Palestinian diaspora around, around the world, everyone has an opinion. But everyone thinks they have an informed opinion. The first thing I would say is pick your reporters and your analysts. Don't When a war happens, everyone jumps on a plane. Everyone gets very excited. Look at who you're listening to. How long have they spent in the region? Do they speak the language? Are they standing on a balcony of a hotel with a microphone? Or are they spending every day getting into those communities, into different communities, into diverse communities? Are they indicating to you how many shades of gray there are or are they reading press releases? And far more than trying to update yourself every hour, you should be trying to educate yourself. And that's really what we try and do at the News Hour, what I've certainly endeavored to do my entire career and very much with this war is not every day just talk about, oh, how far have these troops moved? Where's this tank going? What weapons are they using? Those things are all important. But context, particularly in a conflict like this, that is so enmeshed in its history, is so important. I spend every day when I'm out there going into a different community, talking to a different community about what they've experienced, what they've experienced in the last few weeks, what they've experienced in the last few months, what they've experienced in the last few decades, to educate the audience about what they're learning what's happening and why it matters and how it will affect the country moving forward things like what i was talking about earlier about how diverse israeli public opinion is it is united on this one issue of the war but it will fragment again afterwards benjamin netanyahu the prime minister is the most unpopular man in the country he's insisting on continuing and of course he can't step down during the during a war but he wants to carry on afterwards we'll see what happens then we'll see whether this changes the face of israeli politics which it may well do What's happening in Gaza is the biggest threat to Palestinian existence we've seen in decades. There are many, many different groups of Palestinians who think different things. What kind of viewpoint on Gaza are you being given? Many people think that Gaza was a wasteland before this war because they, they hadn't really seen anything about it. Gaza is a highly developed place. Palestinians have the highest literacy rate of all Arabs. It's around 97%. Highly educated society very entrepreneurial deeply community giving engaged if you look at the doctors who refuse to abandon hospitals in north gaza they've sent their families south and they're standing in these hospitals dying because they won't leave their people because they won't abandon their jobs get to know the people in this war get to know the israelis in this war as well get to know understand that a kibbutz and a settlement are not the same thing you know, the people who lived in kibbutz and across the border were some of the most peace-loving. Many of the people who were kidnapped and murdered on the 7th of October worked for charities that helped bring children from Gaza to hospitals. These are all shades of grey and they're very, very important. So that's the first thing. Really look at whether the people you're listening to know what they're talking about. As I say, the language is so important. The history is so important. Have they lived out there? Have they have they done their homework? And, and how diverse is the spectrum of voices that they're giving you? Uh, certainly, I mean, we all know which TV stations and newspapers are partisan and which aren't. Um, you know, of course, as I say, the news has a very strong um, history of, of absolute impartiality, which a lot of people don't like. In this war, everybody wants you to take a side. And they don't like it when you say you don't have one. But they do respect it when they see that you are absolutely giving a voice to everyone. Um, newspaper wise, of course, the Washington Post has extremely strong Middle East coverage. It's got a very, very strong, very um, human-hearted team. Uh, the New York Times is extremely good on investigations. That's something that they are really, really strong on. And I would, you know, advise going to them when you want analysis of something um, that's just happened. Um, and look at European media. You know, look outside a little bit outside your own um, your own back door. There's a lot of very, very good work happening. Um, the New Yorker has been doing some extremely strong personal essays on issues from people um, that take things very much into the history and the context. Uh, that's a very good one to go with as well. Um, so there are, you know, there are really trustworthy sources, but also really in something like this, I would say beyond platforms, pick your reporters because there are, and as I say, I'm not in the practice of, of criticizing colleagues or outlets, so I won't do that. But there are outlets that I would not feel do this very well uh, 
and that are quite biased to one side or another. And there are reporters working for those outlets who have lived in the region for years, who are doing work that you wouldn't expect to come out from those stations and those newspapers. So get to know your reporters. Twitter is a great source for that. X, I'm sorry, I still fail to call it X. Um, you know, get to know them on Instagram, follow what they're doing, see where they're going and, and trust them because really they're your link. The point of report is that is that we're your link out there. You know, we are your conduit to people. Um, so don't just rely on, on the media institutions. Books-wise, there is an absolute trove of history to go into. I mean, immediately start with Edward Said. Um, Edward Said is an absolute master, very important Palestinian scholar who wrote about the Palestinian question um, in a deeply educated and thoughtful way um, and really gives voice to that. Um, Noam Chomsky is an extremely interesting um, uh, Jewish thinker who wrote about Israeli-Palestinian politics um, from a left-wing point of view in terms of the fact that Zionism was supposed to be a left-wing project and it could work so well um, you know, with these states, work, states working together. Uh, David Hurst writes incredibly well on the political history of both Israel and Palestine and the entire region. Um, there are multiple books he's written about previous peace processes that are really good to get into. That's just a few, you know, a spectrum of um, of kind of people to start with. Um, but yeah, go and have a dig around. As soon as you start, there's, there's a huge amount to do. Uh, there's also wonderful novels um, which really take you into the voices of these people. Um, Susan Abelhauer is an incredibly famous Palestinian novelist who's written some quite incredible um, books about the Palestinian uh, story from 1948. So yeah, try and try and go and educate yourself a bit further back than just this war, because once you get into it and you realize all the nuances, this is a story that will be with us for the rest of all of our lifetimes. The purpose of this show and why I started it as a former news producer at one of these outlets that you're mentioning about, you wouldn't go to for coverage is because subject matter expertise, the tagline is we talk to people who know what they're talking about. And like I've mentioned before in journalism and why I started this show about people's search habits being so lazy because they go to one place at eight o'clock on one network and they take that and they carry that conversation wise out into the world. And I don't want them to do that. They're supposed to take a series of facts and commonalities across different outlets and interpret that as the truth. And you've done such a great job today. Uh, if you want to see more of Layla's reporting from over there uh, in the conflict zones and the different countries she's covered, go to pbs.org. She's a NewsHour special correspondent. Layla, I can't thank you enough for coming on the program. I want to wish you continued success. Please stay safe when you do go back to the region. And you're always welcome on this program. Thank you, Mike, for your thoughtful questions. It was great speaking with you. We've partnered with our friends over at BetterHelp. If you're thinking of starting therapy, I want you all to give BetterHelp a try because it's online, it's convenient, it's flexible, it's suitable to your schedule. Nick, I know you're excited about this partnership and we've been talking a lot about the mental health space and getting people to talk again, right? Give us a little bit of your thoughts on, on this partnership with BetterHelp. You know, back in 2020, during the pandemic, 
you know, we, we saw the benefits of going virtual. And one of the biggest examples of that was the work that the folks at BetterHelp were doing about making mental health av available in the virtual space. But oftentimes when we think about BetterHelp, we think about post-pandemic. And the reality is that BetterHelp has been around since 2013 to help provide access to healthcare. And they have about 30,000 licensed therapists that they're working with to offer that opportunity. I'm very excited about this partnership. Yeah, that's very well said. So all you got to do is go to betterhelp.com slash can we please talk. You're going to get 10% off your first month. You're going to fill out a brief questionnaire while you're there so you can get matched up with a licensed therapist. You can switch therapists as well anytime for no additional charge. You know, I want people to start talking again. That's why we've done this partnership with our friends over at BetterHelp. Hit the link in our show notes or go to betterhelp.com slash can we please talk to get started today. Nick, today's episode is presented as always by our friends over at Fresh Roasted Coffee. Since 2009, their passion has always been bringing you gourmet coffees from all over the world, roasted fresh to order. I got my coffee snob here, Nick Saveri. Nick, tell these people, coffee snob it up here. Tell these people why Fresh Roasted Coffee is so good and why they're the official sponsor of Can We Please Talk. You know, often the best cup of coffee that you're ever going to have is the one you can make, you can make from home. And you need good quality coffee to do that. And that's what Fresh Roasted Coffee offers. You know, between single origin, between blends, flavors, anything on the coffee spectrum they've got. But more importantly, and I can't stress this enough, often when you purchase coffee, you don't know where to start. I mean, there's so many different varieties, so many different opportunities, so many different things you could choose from. And Fresh Roasted Coffee just gives you a very simple questionnaire and just says, hey, figure out what your, cup, what your coffee cup is. Figure out what blend works for you. I've gotten some single origin recommendations, so is Mike, and that's influenced everything. And what they recommend, you can get in a Keurig cup, the way Mike takes it. You can take it in the way I do it, which is typically through a French press, or you can get it for a percolator. Whatever coffee machine you've got, they've got you covered. But more importantly, just a huge variety and a way to learn more about coffee itself. And all of this is available at freshroastedcoffee.com on their site. One cup is all it takes to fall in love with fresh roasted coffee, but you get a discount for being a listener of Can We Please Talk. Enter in the promo code Can We Please Get 20 to get 20% off your first purchase. Head to freshroastedcoffee.com today. All right, my thank yous there to Layla Molana Allen. Like I mentioned, if you want to watch the video portions of our interview with Layla, Head over to our YouTube channel, type in Can We Please Talk Podcast. We should pop right up. Hit the subscribe button for me while you're there. And if you want to check out more of her stories, go to pbs.org. Audio podcast platforms, you know by now, Apple, Spotify, Google. Shout out to everybody who listens to us over on Good Pods. Shout out to Acast, our hosting platform. We can't do it without them. I truly, truly, truly say this each and every week, but I, we can't do it without each and every one of you that listens to this program. Continue to write into us. Can we please talk podcast at gmail.com. You have some thoughts feelings, emotions, whatever it is, come on and talk to us. As always, I am Mike Leon. We'll see everybody next time.